Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in South Asia, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Andavarapu, the host of this channel, and today I'm thrilled to be in conversation with Sudhir Chalarajan, author of Social Theory of Corruption, Notes from the Indian Subcontinent, published by Harvard University Press in 2020. Professor Rajan teaches at the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Indian Institute of Technology, Madras. I must add here that I am an alum of that department and um, having the pleasure uh, of taking Professor Rajan's courses, I'm doubly delighted to be doing this interview today. Thanks so much for joining me today, Chala. Thanks. Thank you, uh, Sneha. It's been lovely to be invited and to be here. Yeah, it's it's really, uh, it's like... Uh, a full circle, you know, from me taking your classes to doing this now. So I'm really, I'm really um, pumped about this. Um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself to start off the interview, perhaps um, your journey into academia and into research? Yeah, sure. Uh, so it's, uh, it feels like uh, only yesterday, but I've been at IIT for about uh, 14, 15 years now, 14 years, actually. Uh, and prior to that, another seven or, or eight years I spent in Boston and then I was in India before that. So I've had a sort of a checkered journey post uh, my doctorate, which wasn't a true PhD. It's called uh, Doctorate Doctor of Environmental Science and Engineering. It was the most wonderful decision I made to join that program because it taught me uh, to be a master of all, uh, of none, really. (laughs) A jack of all trades. So, so I I mean, the the idea was really cool because... uh, uh, we were asked to think about an anti-PhD to become generalists. So I came with a background in uh, 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 engineering and, and natural sciences, atmospheric science, to be more precise. And then I kind of uh, wandered off into law departments, uh, philosophy, political theory, urban studies, and so on, in order to fulfill my course requirements. And then I, had, I was packaged off to go you know, get a job somewhere where I spent five years writing my dissertation. So it was a very, you know, unique uh, kind of doctoral experience. And that kind of uh, led me in various possible directions. And uh, I'm glad I kind of got a, uh, got a book that I'm very proud of from that, uh, The Enigma of Automobility, which, I, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to hear uh, you having yeah. encountered as well. <laughs> Thank yes. you. Yeah. Uh, so, but but since then, I mean, I never really got the kind of academic position I uh, was coveting. Instead, I, I, I was in a variety of wonderful 
jobs, uh, which taught me a lot, uh, but uh, I also had to fend for money, you know, being mostly a research consultant. And somewhere along that point of being a research consultant, I, I worked mostly on energy and, and climate change and so on, but I also had the opportunity to, to start thinking a little bit about institutions, uh, political institutions in particular, in relation to the electricity sector at first, and then more broadly, when I got, a, got this uh, wonderful grant uh, uh, from the U.S. State Department, uh, a blue sky grant to to sort of explore uh, corruption. So, so it was it was a bit of a, a shock to get that grant, but uh, it was very timely, and I and I learned a lot about the the, the domain that I finally came to. But I, I'm sorry to keep going on about this because I did spend the last 14 years as mostly as a teacher. And that taught me, uh, you know, encountering uh, students like yourself, you know, just taught me a lot more about uh, the field of political theory, social and political theory, particularly in relation to institutions and corruption. So I think that's that's where I got the inspiration to to really start work on this book. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more, perhaps, um, how did you decide to write a book about it or um, was it... Was it always at the back of your mind? And did you just, um, have you been working on this book for a very long time? We would just like love to know more of the details behind the story of this book. Yeah, so 2003-04 was when I was at the TELUS Institute in Boston. And uh, I, this is when I, you know, I applied for this grant. I told you about the, the, the U.S. State Department grant. And uh, what, it was just a two, two and a half year Grant and I, I, I got a very interesting project with the help of some wonderful colleagues out of it. Uh, if you go to institutionalreform.org, uh, you know, it kind of explains the, the directions we took with that project. But most importantly, I think uh, it kind of exposed me to this very broad uh, literature uh, on corruption and uh, very timely too because uh, the, you know, countries of the world had just... Uh, uh, signed and, and ratified uh, this UN Convention on Anti-Corruption, which was a big deal. It sort of came out of uh, the US trying to put pressure on terrorist finance networks and so on uh, to sort of deal with money laundering. And then uh, it kind of, uh, so, so transnational crime was seen as, as, a, uh, as a necessary focus. And out of that, uh, this wonderful uh, convention actually emerged. And, you know, out of some contingent crisis circumstances, I always feel you know we have some opportunities for wonderful uh, democratic or republican ideals. Right. So, so, so the UN Convention on Anti-Corruption was important in for many respects because it was it also helped shift the the sort of the the, the burden of corruption from what you know, I've been calling, and along with other, many others, uh, petty corruption or you know, the just individual bribes or even administrative forms of bribe collection and so on, to the importance of networks, the importance of networks of crime. And, and uh, so around this time also, there was a lot of very interesting literature coming out. Uh, uh, Vincent Ruggiero, for instance, on uh, white collar crime. So, sorry, uh, Vincenzo uh, Ruggiero, I was just being lazy. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and so, 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 so this was an exciting time to study corruption, as it were, right? 
And, uh, and then a few years later, we had uh, several key uh, events around the world. One was, of course, uh, Citizens United in the US, which allowed corporations to provide uh, freely to electoral campaigns in the US. And you know, that that's, 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 turns out to be a very huge uh, way to sort of hide uh, illegally earned money, but also, you know, just political uh, contributions. I mean, one of the worst things that uh, cor uh, corruption, anti-corruption experts fear, you know, that 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 you sort of loosen up cam uh, political campaign finance, and and this is what precisely what the Supreme Court did. Right. So 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 these kinds of events led to other literatures around that time, right? Around uh, uh, so from. Uh, uh, political scientists, activists, and so on, asking this question, okay, if, if corruption isn't this conventional bribe-taking that everybody is so annoyed about, but it's, it, it, it in, in involves these more complex networks and players, then something else ought to be studied. You know, so we, we, sh we should start focusing on other things. And this was also largely, uh, I would think, reaction to... Uh, donor policy, so the way, you know, the World Bank had defined corruption in particular ways and donors uh, appropriately picked up, you know, they gave their monies to, uh, to fund certain types of anti-corruption campaigns. So some of those were good, you know, uh, they, they, they rationalized the, the bureaucracy to some extent, you know, things like that. Right? But, 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 the, but the focus on deviance, you know, on bureaucratic deviance was so powerful uh, that uh, even to this day, with, with well-meaning colleagues, I'm, I'm constantly arguing about, uh, you know, why they're confusing this notion of informality with corruption. So rules not being followed, it becomes an inform informal negotiation, and therefore that's, that's automatically corruption. And I, and, I, and I keep asking, why aren't you focusing on the, on the, on the larger networked, really, the, the, the social character of corruption? So that's, that's you know... Roughly where I kind of found myself going, I mean, I could go on in this way, but I think, uh, I mean, uh, you were kind enough to share some of your uh, thoughts as to how this interview might proceed. So I, I know you have other things that you'd want to ask me, and I, I'll weave some of these uh, narratives in. Yeah, no, I think that that was a great way to introduce uh, perhaps um, what I was going to go for next, which is that the book very usefully puts forth the social theory of corruption. And as you put it, you view corruption as a social institution that's relatively stable and reproduces itself. And you uh, emphasize the role of networks in particular. I was actually curious. Um, I mean, you've already answered that it's um, responding to certain other approaches, um, which, for instance, looking at bureau bureaucratic, bureaucratic deviation for um, which political science and I guess economics has done to to a large extent uh, but I was also curious to know why South Asia was a particularly ripe site for your inquiry um, and you know whether you were always interested in writing I think a rather ambitious history of sorts right like a genealogy at least um, of of corruption in the subcontinent so why South Asia I guess yeah, that's that's a really excellent question, and I think uh, you've you've in a sense also invited me to weave both parts of your, you know, question. I, I mean, uh, in the sense that why sociological or why social theory of corruption and why India, and I think the two are linked in the following way: in that 
I uh, well, so I'm, like I let me begin by saying who I'm responding to, and that might answer this question a little more clearly. Who or what I'm responding to is uh, methodological individualism, which uh, you know puts forth this quite absurd argument that you can indeed define corruption simply as this uh, uh, ability to, to write incentives or to provide the right incentives for people to act uh, justly. Right? So, so it's, it sort of, I think, uh, presumes uh, this ring of judges uh, top of such sort of framework, you know, where in Plato's Republic, uh, Glaucon postulates, what if, you know, you had a ring that made you invisible and you could, uh, wouldn't get caught, uh, would it be okay for the just to become thereby unjust, right? And, and so, uh, so, so that becomes a sort of a, a default natural uh, assumption about human incentive and motivation and behavior, and, and that kind of then feeds the rest of the narrative. So that's, that's the... Uh, 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 so, so methodological individualism, which sort of drives this, doesn't even have the kind of barbarian uh, sophistication to it, where you could sort of talk about relationships and uh, uh, and, and and power and, and and so on, right? So, so I I think that that's the that's the definition of corruption, and I and I and I suspect, and I don't have the skills obviously to pursue this line of thinking, but I, I suspect that my own theory of corruption would explain this type of. Uh, uh, Theorizing, right? The methodological individualism and, and their dominance. So it's 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 a it's a very uh, uh, terrible rabbit hole to go down, and and I, I and I was so I was I was thrilled to go to these conferences and learn about the literature that was really shattering uh, that framework, and yet wondering why it wasn't becoming more widespread in policy, right? And so on. So so. So those were some of the ideas that uh, were starting to motivate me. And I realized that uh, uh, around the same time, I was thinking about uh, what various types of uh, new methods in the social sciences, especially around big history, were uh, revealing. I've been uh, following Dipesh Chakravarti very closely for sort of a, trying to uh, understand my own epistemology, my own motivation for wanting to look at India's deep past and so on. And, 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 and this, this question of big, big history as an ontological uh, uh, possibility opened up to me. And, this, uh, and, 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 and around the same time, I was also teaching uh, Durkheim and uh, his positivism and uh, there was the Anthropocene and, you know, all of these themes were starting to become salient in various, variously interesting ways. And uh, it just struck me, and this, and this was completely on a whim. I, I happened to meet uh, uh, this editor, the publisher from um, uh, Harvard University Press, because Ram Goha very kindly uh, introduced her to me. And I met her in my office and she was asking me what I was doing and I hadn't been completely prepared. I was actually thinking of two or three themes having to do with, uh, you know, uh, the climate catastrophe and so on. And uh, I just blurted out, you know, uh, what's a long history of corruption look like to you? And 
she was so wonderful and so patient with me that for the next several weeks we were you know working quite closely to try and hone this to make this into something uh, presentable and then when the proposal was uh, approved i was still you know struggling with this question so i knew i had this large tapestry uh, i i'm not sure if you've heard this uh, story maybe it's just apocryphal uh, martin amis uh, was asked when uh, Rushdie got the uh, Booker Prize for Midnight's Children. Martin Amis was asked, uh, well, don't you feel bad about uh, not getting it yourself? And uh, Rushdie is a you know, much, uh, you know, he's a later writer than you. And, uh, uh, and, and Martin said, well, Rushdie's got India, right? So I've, I felt <laughs> this, 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 this very orientalist thrill, if you like, of, of uh, you know, kind of uh, getting into uh, the meat of the matter. So I, I think I think I was just uh, you know rushing along with with no clear intent in mind, except that I was excited about the uh, the possibilities that these this other literature you know these these the you know that I, that I could potentially uh, stand on the shoulders of many giants uh, to sort of uh, start exploring this as speculatively and as you know wantonly as I needed to because uh, you know that's one of the wonderful things about academia that's 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 another subject right once, once you're a tenured professor you feel completely uh, uh, at liberty to to explore anything in any which way you want as long as you know you follow certain rules so so i think that's that's uh, what led me down this path about uh, 6 years ago uh, and uh, so i'm 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 must say i'm, I'm a little Surprised by the outcome, but it also stands apart from me, the book. So I'm, I, you know, I, I see it now as something that uh, I'll have to, um, you know, I'm, I'm forced to defend, but also uh, is at some distance from it. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, and I guess um, it sort of takes a life of its own after it's out there in the world. And, and I'm sure you'll be, I guess, amused when people cite it in ways that you perhaps did not intend, as, as it always happens. Um, so just, uh, I guess, uh, coming back to, to the South Asia question a little, um, how did uh, writing about the Indian subcontinent, I guess, was it... How did it um, change the way you thought about corruption? Did it, or um, yeah, like what were the affordances of of doing so? Yeah, so so to be honest, I was uh, feeling rather intimidated by a question that Dipesh Chakravarti poses. He says, uh, "Who speaks of Indian past?" And I I felt uh, well, dare I, you know, uh, get into this, and uh, and and I, and I even sort of engaged with a little bit of a 
what I thought was a friendly tussle with uh, uh, the patient, but, but I was also sort of distracted by other themes that became uh, relevant. I mean that that it's not it's not just that you are thinking about South Asia as a an already contested uh, uh, a, a domain of historiography to to sort of uh, do something and, and and muck it up, or the other other way of thinking about this is where do we in a sense, uh, uh, explore macro sociology. Right? Uh, if 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 the if the tradition has been to do this largely uh, in in Europe, and if it, if that tradition and, and maybe more recently in say places like China uh, and South Asia's deep past have always sort of seemed disconnected from the present because of the legacy of colonialism. Maybe. One way to sort of sidestep this question is to uh, really start using methods that are now, you know, sort of legitimized by the academy, you know, big history and so on. So this was, again, you know, a very foolhardy uh, plan of mine. And, and I think, I, think I, I, I felt confident about, or foolhardy about pulling it off only because I come from a tradition where I've, I've been sort of window shopping in the, in the social sciences. I don't really feel committed to be a sociologist or a political scientist or or anything else. Uh, so so that that that's that's a, sort of a, a, an unfortunate hubris on my part. But I think it was it was helpful to me in in not and I and I haven't been to many conferences, so people haven't you know told me face to face that I, what I'm saying is rubbish. So so I've sort of had a had a fairly privileged life in in in, uh, in doing this. So so the the. Honestly, the exploration of India is also because I, you know, had this childhood ambition of, of being uh, a historian of ancient India, of early India, rather, right? Uh, and, 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 and so uh, somehow I never got to do this. So it, it seemed like the perfect opportunity to, to, to do this. So, so seriously, my, my, my most exciting, uh, the most exciting part of my journey was working on Harappa. And uh, so, because uh, I read a, a whole lot of uh, archaeology and uh, uh, and so on, and of that period, and uh, uh, it, it it sort of kind of had a, it, it felt complete and exhaustive, and I knew I couldn't do that, especially as I got uh, to more re recent times. So I've had colonial historians tell me, you know, not not with, uh, 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 but I mean. W uh, without necessarily sort of condemning the work as a whole as a result of that criticism, but telling me that I don't explore enough of these, you know, of colonialism's corruption, right? And, 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 and I admit it. I mean, I just feel that that's actually been said in so many ways. Uh, so I don't really need to repeat that uh, narrative. And that, and that literature is also uh, uh, considerably beyond capabilities of my kind of dilettantism to to realize right so so that's so so south asia the south asia question is is a tough one i'll admit it makes me uncomfortable uh but it it, it also makes me that that the, the 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 when i start exploring the reasons for my discomfort i also feel more justified than ever to to sort of assert it right and and so that's 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 also 
something that I, I need to think about separately. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, no, I mean, I thought this was really useful to to hear you speak about these sorts of, um, I guess, dilemmas that one wrestles with. It's always interesting to hear authors speak because I think the writing voice is very different. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, the the book is um, centered around a concept that you called grand corruption, which is, uh, you say, facilitated by elite networks. Um, so I was actually going to ask you a question that I had tucked away for later, but I was going to put uh, slide it into this one as well. Is Could you tell us a little bit about what corruption, grand corruption means and how, I guess, is it different from a Marxist reading of um, corruption? Um, because in a sense, you are also looking at um, longer term patterns of systemic exploitation um, and, you know, like thinking about them in relation to patriarchy and forced labor. So how is this, I guess, different from a Marxist reading? And is it different from a Marxist reading? Um, and why? Yeah. Yeah, no, those, those, are, those are important questions. And uh, uh, let me first uh, say where the term comes from, grand corruption. Yeah. It uh, comes from this typology, which I think Susan Rose uh, Ackerman uh, was the first to use, although I, I could be wrong. I've seen it uh, uh, in, in other contexts as well, uh, of petty administrative and uh, grand corruption. And petty corruption is, uh, uh, has to do with, uh, you know, just uh, the, the, the street-level exchange of favors with bureaucrats right, of, of, of various sorts. Uh, and administrative is, is that plus. So that, you know, bundled into uh, offices and uh, uh, arrangements, uh, you know, maybe going up to ministers and so on. So, so it doesn't really matter how, how, even if it's uh, at the level of political campaigns, it's still considered just administrative uh, corruption. Grand corruption is used to talk about uh, the political system, the very legitimacy of the political system, resting on uh, a, a set of betrayals, if you will. Right? Uh, so... Uh, so, so Francis Fukuyama very helpfully uh, described uh, uh, the U.S. after the 1980s as sort of falling into this kind of grand corruption in the sense that uh, excessive legislative control and uh, creating and, 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 and sort of uh, judicial distance because of the very nature of the institutional uh, relationships uh, and uh, you know political you know lobbying and all that going on in the background, but completely legitimate. Right? So all of these working in collusion to create a kind of a, a system out of which you really can't get out of. Right? You can't you can't do uh, accounting reform. You can't do uh, you know there's, there's all kinds of examples of ways in which. Uh, the U.S. legislative pro process had allowed for a systematic or systemic corruption. And uh, there's a wonderful uh, book out by Zephyr Teachout called uh, Corruption in America, which really uh, speaks to that. So, so, so what, what uh, uh, grand corruption implies is that this, there's a particular nexus of wealth and power uh, that produces these routines and these ways that you can't, you're locked into, uh, that, you, that, that, that are so formalized or institutionalized that you really uh, don't know what else to do. And, and, and uh, 
what I found really exciting in, the, in my literature search was Michael Johnston's work where in his Syndromes of Corruption, he has a remarkable and hybrid array of methods to classify different countries into different syndromes. So he has this term oligarchs and clans uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the, the Trump regime today uh, probably resembles that, but it was really, Philip, uh, you know, classic of Philippines under the Marcoses, uh, Putin and Yeltsin's uh, Russia, etc. Right. So, so anyway, so, so these, so the, the, the U.S. he calls, uh, uh, I think, influence markets. There's influence markets, there's elites and uh, elite cartels, uh, official moguls, etc. Right? So there are these four classes or syndromes of grand corruption. Now, once you start describing grand corruption in these ways, you realize that it's endemic to these societies. And I don't want to say, I mean, uh, certainly Johnston doesn't, and I don't either. I don't want to sort of uh, have this tragic crisis mode to it, which certain versions of uh, Hegelian Marxism might. And, and, and so that's, that's the, uh, uh, the challenge. How do we think of these assemblages as, as having, uh, you know, uh, these uh, uh, non-determinate uh, 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 emergent outcomes? And when do these emergent outcomes, in a sense, uh, have this recurrence of tragedy because they, they fall into identifiable patterns or syndromes. And so that, that, that's, that seemed like a, I mean, I really, Johnston's typology was also consistent with the sort of the realist ontology that I was, I was getting more and more attracted to, especially in light of the work I was doing on climate change and so on. Right. So I, I think trying to, uh, uh, think of grand corruption as a syndrome that not just appears once in some, uh, you know, generational lifetime, but actually seems to fester into a social characteristic, I thought was an interesting uh, hypothesis worth pursuing. And again, you know, the, the tapestry of Indian past seemed just too perfect not to uh, examine for that reason. So, so, that, so, so, so they're completely on a whim, <laughs> fueled by all these different uh, uh, factors, I might say, you know, that, that kind of get, got me interested in this project. And, and then again, like I said, I, I had no idea where it would go, but it sort of one thing led to another. And, you know, this, this theme of grand corruption in particular seemed to kind of link it all together. So that was really helpful. Thanks for elaborating on the on the theory or theorization of uh, corruption in your book. But I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about where and how does resistance or mass mobilization against corruption feature in this in this vision or in this conceptualization of corruption? That's a really important question, uh, Sneha, and I think uh, uh, it has to do with this Republican spirit that seems to be implicit in the very word for corruption. Corruption stands for something rotten. And in 
almost all languages that I've explored. Uh, for instance, brashtachar in uh, Sanskrit is to rot. Uh, the word in Tamil is uh, ural. In Chinese, it's fubai. The old English is karamp. It's rottenness, decay, and so on. A society rots when its uh, soul is blurry. And its soul is uh, its uh, sense of collective purpose. And I think that aspiration for collective purpose is expressed through forms of civic humanism. Just ways of making ourselves uh, 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 joyful. And uh, you see this in a whole series of historical plebeian or plebeian uh, events. And uh, in our, our times, you know, the constitutional sparks of a uh, 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 constitutional republic. I think that's the, uh, the, that's the constituent uh, moment of uh, transformation from corruptions of various sorts. And I don't think it's always successful. I don't think, I mean, there are continuities between pre-revolutionary and post-revolutionary times. And at the present moment, I start, I'm starting to feel that we are in a kind of this Victor Turner moment. I don't know if uh, you've seen these words of his where he says that from time to time, society wants to take a look at itself, a slice of itself. And when it does so, uh, it sort of sees something liminal. And so it does so often in this ritual manner right, of, of engaging in this liminality. And, and somehow the entire Trump era sort of culminating in the capital attack seems to me be that kind of uh, moment. And, it's, uh, it's, and that's why it's very Durkheimian in that sense, his, his description of football events and so on. And I, I feel, why not, you know, take this hypothesis to uh, looking mm -hmm. at oh, longer right. time frames. Yeah, yeah, sorry, this, is this okay? And uh, why not do this in over a longer time frames? And if one were to do that, you know, what what forms of transformation do you see? And in India's long past, I think we we, we very clearly see uh, the Dharma age as representing some some critical uh, uh, challenge and transformation, and some very complex themes within it as well. And uh, so, so, so resistance, yes, but it's really a kind of a transformative, non-revolutionary, slow festering, but, you know, still uh, possible to see as a kind of a counter hegemony at work. And that's, that's, that's something that, that seems to me to have the sort of the very haziest of uh, uh, meanings and, uh, you know, visions. So I can't describe that beyond that as, as you know, of, of, of even seeing evidence of anything beyond that. But the present moment is sort of ripe with possibilities. And that's and it's also so urgent. Right. And, and I think that's uh, 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 the, the, the thing that, that concerns me most. And and here it is the 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 the, the our, our kind of our, our the the stories around kings and queens that bother me the most, right? That, that we take them so much for granted. They're so much part of our, uh, you know, ideology in ways that we can't even fully express. 
And, and so I wonder, you know, I, if, if I were more skilled, I'd be doing research into looking at uh, Leviathan-type images across various state formations, right? either explicitly or not. So I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about how those are really hiding these elite nodes of power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, in a sense, in the book, you trace the genealogy of corruption through what you call big intervals in the region's history. And in chapter four, five, six, you walk us through the Harappan and uh, Vedic civilization until the rise of the Mauryas. So while it's impossible, of course, to get at the depth of everything you've written, I wanted to invite you to speak a little bit on a couple of very intriguing arguments you make in this section of the book. And it, I guess, is a continuation from what we've been discussing until now. Uh, but first, you sort of bring up the question of habitus and link it to corruption. Um, with, And you do this specifically with reference to the Vedic age. So I wanted to ask you, what does um, the body and bodily practices have to do with political corruption? Yeah, so... I, I rely on this notion that uh, something about, uh, well, it seems to me most evident in the lineage of uh, Brahmanism from the Vedic age to the present. I was, uh, my father was uh, uh, raised a, a, a Brahmin, a Tamil Brahmin, but he, he, he kind of left it deliberately by becoming a theosophist and I was never raised with any, uh, you know, Hindu uh, ritual. But on the other hand, it used to fascinate me because uh, of my, you know, everyday encounters with it. And what, what seems so kind of patent to me is the manner in which it is the, it is the sort of the interpolation of body uh, intextualization that in a sense, makes up our society and our politics. So, so, so both the conditions of life and our ways of living within it are kind of constantly sort of in this dialectic with each other around, around the mediated through the body, right? And so I think that, that continuity startles me, particularly in, in the case of Brahmanism, but, but you see it across different, you know, transformations and timescales and so on. And it occurs to me that I mean, obviously, I'm projecting backwards from our overly, you know, marketed, uh, commodified uh, age, right? Uh, where every object and every gesture and everything is 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 uh, uh, monetized in some way. Uh, but I see these as rent-producing activities, and I'm wondering whether that can be more fully justified. And that's 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 really the at the sort of the heart of my exploration. So in that sense, it's, a, it's you know, we, we spoke earlier about Marxism or the relationship to Marxism, and I don't think I fully answered that at all, but I am rather committed to this idea from, from Marx, you know, the, which, which sort of has its echoes in Piketty and so on, that it's the rent collection activity that produces this, this extreme, you know, drive for uh, accumulation, territory, and so on. And uh, I don't want to sort of over-psychologize that, of course, but, but I, it seems to me that, that, the, that the link between elite network formation or extreme inequality and 
cultural practices needs some kind of tying up of these loose ends. And there's, there's actually wonderful work on some of this from, you know, people who's, I mean, I forget their names, but there was a, there was a paper from about two decades ago on uh, the Medici in Florence and their uh, very complex uh, networks deep into various parts of what we would call society, right? Plebeian society. So, so I think that's, that's, a, that's a kind of a networked corridor uh, view of territory and power that I think can give us some um, uh, very clear uh, indications of the connections between body culture and elite network power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really, um, again, like uh, wonderfully articulated. Thank you. Um, and just to follow up on something you mentioned uh, earlier, was actually my second question in in this line of thinking about chapter four, five, and six. Um, how exactly does dharma become an ideological prop in the service of corruption, as you put it? Um, could you elaborate a little bit on that process? I'm sorry, I, I I think I misheard that question. Could you please repeat it? Yeah. Um, how does dharma become an ideological prop in the service of corruption? And we've already you started talking about it a little bit. But I thought I would just ask you to elaborate on that. Yeah, so 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 I'm afraid, you know, I, I, I've had the hardest time with that chapter on Dharma uh, because of, uh, you know, it's such a vast domain and there's so much that's uh, to be said about Dharma. But what interested me most was, uh, was how you had this, if you, that you first hear about Dharma, from not from the Dharma Sutras or the Dharma Shastras, but from Ashoka's edicts. So it's quite clear that something about Buddhism sparked off this uh, 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 debate on on Dharma, and uh, it's uh, it's not just at the level of ideas or philosophy. It's clearly at operated through territorial power. So you had Buddhist, you had a Buddhist emperor, uh, Ashok, who established his his dominance, his territorial dominance across a very large uh, landscape, and then you had, after that, much smaller, uh, but still incipient instances until the Guptas, of uh, you know, territorial claims made again on dharma, but this time increasingly articulated through a kind of a a Brahminical uh, revivalism, but completely reorganized and and, uh, shaped into a question of dharma. And then you have the the great epics, and this is what I find so fascinating. And and, and to me, the Mahabharata is a a great, we talked about resistance earlier, it's a great act of resistance, it's a poetic uh, resistance in many ways. And uh, uh, because more than half the book, and I didn't know this, I mean, it's, 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 it's several volumes, of course, but more than half of it is devoted to this very question of Dharma. And uh, of course, so Yudhishthira, after the Great War, is, 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 is refuses to take the throne. And this is, again, you know, for me, uh, this very peculiar revelation of what might be at stake. So I, I find uh, that 
that kind of uh, use of dharma extraordinarily uh, in interesting and important for this, uh, these observations. But again, my 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 readings are, are completely superficial, and you know, it's it's almost like you know. I've I've been a bot going through Wikipedia and and picking up relevant themes and and stringing them together and I feel completely ill at ease to talk about some of these histories, uh, especially you know with historians around and mm -hmm. so on. Yeah, I mean that's um, that's fair enough. I mean, but um, so yeah, I just wanted to thank you again for taking time out to do this. I just realized that I exhausted my questions, but I felt like we've had such a rich and a fulfilling conversation that um, I really want to thank you for that. But before we end this conversation, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now and what we may expect to read by you in the near future? Now, that's, again, a good question because I've been puzzling over this very issue for a while because uh, on the one hand, there's so many different exciting directions to go off uh, into, you know, intellectually. And I'd love to do some of those things. I mean, around this question of sovereignty, for instance, this, this relationship between uh, culture and politics and, uh, you know, epistemological issues around the long durée, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Uh, but again, in, in, in uh, political terms, uh, kind of the, uh, the, the need for constitutional republicanism also appeals very much to me, you know, trying to understand uh, you know, how do we move forward? How do we kind of get out of this? If, it, if this hypothesis is indeed true, that, that we're sort of locked into these uh, corrupt social and cultural practices and that, that we need to change bodily habitus, where do we kind of go? Uh, I've worked before on automobility, as you know, and, and, and this, this was also, you know, what are alternatives to the automobile in a place like Los Angeles, right? So, so these are these are these are uh, difficult questions around land and social reorganization and so on, and this is where I take great comfort in the agroecology movement of the day, and what Sujata, my partner, and I have uh, discovered is that there's a whole world out there of uh, uh, multiple uh, pluriverse, if you like, of uh, of projects around land and food and food sovereignty, which is quite. Uh, Remarkable because it really takes away rent from the equation of, of living and living well. And it's not just some utopian uh, Bhutanese experiment we're talking about. We're really talking about things that can truly turn the planet around, heal the planet uh, in, in several ways uh, through agroecology in particular and the systems of you know, social organization and exchange that go around it. So I'm very, very interested in this question as a kind of a speculative uh, long-term question of uh, uh, sustainability. And, uh, and, and, and at the same time, I'm, 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 I'm very glad that there's so many people working on, you know, the, the craziness of, uh, uh, you know, building spaceships to leave Earth. And uh, so, 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 so that's, that's the direction that I feel most drawn towards. And again, uh, that ne doesn't necessarily mean, you know, writing a book or being involved in uh, academic work of that nature. I probably want to, you know, work with uh, filmmakers and others to sort of explore some 
uh, new directions around this. That's that's where my creative juices, if you like, would be uh, most keen to move towards. Although again, this is wishful <laughs> and that's thinking. very cool, and uh, you know, all the best with I guess thinking yeah. about all of these things and the filmmaking uh, part of it sounds particularly exciting, considering I think alternate forms of writing, uh, I mean, of of um, um, media are always encouraged think, in and around academic uh, and semi-academic spaces. So that's really cool. Um, well, you know, I don't want to take up more of your time, but again, thanks a lot for doing this. And uh, yeah, I hope you have a, a wonderful day ahead. And um, the, yeah. Thank you, Sneha. It's been so lovely talking to you yeah. after all these years. And so wish you all the luck, luck yeah, as well. Thank you. Know, you. Going on to a new job and so on. So. Thank you.